constantly thinking about the next phase of, of these relationships. Obviously, we have to execute them. I mean, that's the key. There's nothing like it. You know, we would see events here for hundreds of people. The lighting and entertainment and the floral, and they raise a lot of money. And, and it's just such a beautiful, beautiful place. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. I am your host, Stephen Toberoff. And I am so looking forward to this interview today, not only because my guest is someone that I consider a friend, but he's someone that I've had the opportunity to get to know a little bit over the past few months and have just been absolutely fascinated by his business, his approach, and, and, and even his personal story. So without further ado, I want to introduce Paul Gallen, who is the president of the Pier 60 Collection at Chelsea Piers. Paul, how are you? Stephen, I'm great. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Paul. I, like I said, I've really been looking forward to this. And there's so many questions I want to ask you and so much I want to get into. But before we get into that, would you mind just sharing a little bit with the audience about yourself, just who you are and how you got into the hospitality business? Yeah, sure. So, um, it, well, they'll probably pick up that I'm, I'm not native to New York. I grew up in Dublin in Ireland and I just had a kind of a natural attraction to hospitality from the time I was a kid. My uncle had been very involved in the hotel business and I I opted to go into the hotel business uh, via the Shannon College of Hotel Management. So I went to schools to study hotel management back in the 80s in Ireland and that was really sort of a pivotal moment for me and I and going to going away to school but particularly studying hotel management hospitality and absolutely fell in love with it there. We spent a year in, in Switzerland and uh, ultimately ended up in the UK and then back in nineteen ninety four moved to the United States and sort of have been here ever since. You know, very cool. Now for people who are from New York City, everybody knows that Chelsea Piers is a magnificent structure, uh, relatively new in the history of New York, a magnificent one. But can you talk a little bit, because even for people who are New Yorkers, such as myself, Chelsea Piers has gone through a number of different evolutions in its existence. Can you tell us a little bit about the Pier 60 collection, what it is, and when you got involved with them? Yeah, sure. So, Chelsea Piers, as you said, Chelsea Piers were built back in the early 1900s by Cunard. Originally, the Titanic would have docked here in, in 1912, had it not been for its uh, demise on that maiden voyage. But the Piers fell into disrepair in the 1980s and through the 1990s had, had been largely abandoned and were housing sanitation trucks and various other things. And Chelsea in general was Nothing like the Chelsea of today. And in 1995, or kind of mid-90s, the city were looking for someone to come in and redevelop the piers. The owners of Chelsea Piers now, uh, Roland Betts, Tom Bernstein, and David Tewksbury, proposed what is here today, Chelsea Piers Sports and Recreation. And that opened, as I said, in 1995. And uh, if you're, you know, if people who aren't familiar with the piers, it's 
a collection of three piers, all of which incorporate various recreational sports activities, mainly geared at children, but there's a field house with gymnastics and basketball, indoor soccer. There's a golf range, the only golf range in New York City. There's a sky rink, which has got two full-size ice rinks. There's an amazing sports center. So the piers have really become a home away from home for children, for after-school activities, for summer camp, and also for adults. So there's an awful lot going on here. There's movie studios. There's a bowling alley. There's a lot going on. And that's what the piers were in 1995. And a kind of funny thing happened with proximity to the Hudson River. It's got these stunning views of the river. People were looking for an ability to have an event somewhere on the piers once they opened in 1995. One of the uh, locations for some of these events was actually on one of the ice rinks, which is on the second floor of Pier 61, which had some view, some access to the river. And they were doing these events, putting down Marley boards and uh, doing these black tie events where, you know, hockey games have been played shortly before, so it's this musty, sweaty uh, atmosphere, you know, and it's, you know, 50 degree temperature, uh, these catered events, black tie events, and apparently, you know, that sometimes they were squeegeeing water from between the, the tables and away from people's feet. So one of the original investors was like, this is crazy. We, we need to find a dedicated venue. People want to have events this badly. Let's build something. So that was the genesis of building the first venue, first dedicated event venue, which is was Pier 60. And that opened in 1998, you know, and it was a partnership between Abigail Kirsch, who at that time were a very well-known catering company in based in Westchester, had a, had a large off-premise footprint throughout the uh, metropolitan area of New York City, and operated Tappan Hill, and we're in the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. Um, or New York Botanical Gardens, excuse me, but also then the Steiner Studios in Brooklyn. And they formed a partnership with Chelsea Piers, and it was a separate company called Pier 60 LLC, and opened Pier 60, which at that time is 25,000 square feet. It's a large venue, so capacity of up to a 1,000 person sit-down dinners. Beautiful, beautiful space right on the water. And it was an immediate success. It became, um, you know, immediately drew people away from the the sort of normal midtown venues that were the vogue at that time. And it became a major player in the business kind of right from the day it opened in 19, uh, 1998. Hmm. Now I want to get into some greater detail because something that, that struck me immediately is I'm, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. So I actually live not too far from Chelsea Piers and I'd been there to the gym and been to other places, but I had an opportunity to go to an event last week that you hosted that, that you and I were participating in. And when you walk into the space, it is stunning. And you have these views of the Hudson River and the space itself is just absolutely gorgeous. But I must tell you, Paul, that my most lasting memory of the event, or at least the first memory that has stayed with me, is the absolutely impeccable treatment that I received from the team that was there in terms of greeting me asking me if I would like uh, any beverage, asking if there's anything they could do for me. And that's kind of a really cool thing because you would think that the first and most lasting memory would be the visuals because there's no place like it in New York City that has that view of the Hudson River. So it leads me to a question, which is, you know, obviously in the hospitality space and certainly someone with your exceptional background in the hotel industry is all about service. But in terms of differentiating yourself from event spaces, obviously you have the unique location of the water, but how much effort do you also put into, or how much focus do you put into that 
other dimension of hospitality, which is how the customer is feeling, their interactions with the staff, and things of that nature? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a great question, Steve, and, and it's really central, I think, to our success here has been that, you know, we've known this company is known. I've been with the company now for over 10 years. I've been running this company. But one of the major challenges that Pier 60 faced, and, you know, the, the Pier 60 collection has grown out to three venues on the piers. We, have, we opened the Lighthouse in, in 2000 and then current, which is our smallest venue in 2015. But the biggest challenge that, that Pier 60 faced was its location back in uh, 1998. You know, Chelsea was not the, as I said earlier, the sort of Chelsea, the, the cool Chelsea of the art galleries and restaurants of Highline and the Whitney and the, you know, all the other great things that we know Chelsea is now. It, it was definitely off the beaten track. There aren't any subways dropping, uh, potential guests and customers right here. So it was a big effort to prize these events away from their midtown hotels, whether it be the Waldorf, the Hilton or the Sheraton or these midtown venues take a chance to come over here uh, to Chelsea and, and have their event, which seemed like the, the Wild West back then in the 90s. So the challenge was to really raise the game in terms of service. And really, you know, while people felt they were coming for, as you said, the beautiful views and this incredible location on the river, they were wowed by the attention and the service that we, we would give the guests and, and the attention we would give to, to the clients who came here but also our attention to food and presentation. And the entire package, ultimately, what they returned for was the service and the food element. I don't think people expected that. So we've always put an enormous amount of value and attention into service. And that really starts with our team and the success of this company is on the back and built on the incredible team staff members that we've had here since we opened, many of who have been here since day one. They make it happen. They make the magic happen. And it's, it's, you know, it's hiring great people, but people who really are passionate about service, about hospitality, about looking after people. That really has been the bedrock of our success. And, and I appreciate you saying that you, you noticed that, but that, that we, you know, obviously it was a small scale meeting, but we try and do that every single day for every guest. And it's really become our calling card. Well, I have a follow-up because I was listening closely to what you said, but a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs or people that are in the hospitality space, but that aspire to one day own or manage their own facility. And what you just described is such an important aspect because rather than simply leveraging and perhaps even falling back on the unique value proposition, and it's a magnificent one, which is the location, you're setting a standard that goes above and beyond that and out-competing other institutions regardless of the magnificent, unique quality of the setting. And that leads me to my follow-up because I'm in the industry. I've been to a number of events. And there are, there are many venues. I don't want to embarrass them, but I think people who are in New York or people who are in the business know that there are certain venues in New York that are known primarily because of their location, whether they're in a park or whether they're in a certain building. And I don't know if it's the case today because I haven't been to them in a number of years, but you certainly got the case in the past that you were going there for that one-dimensional experience and don't expect anything great for the service or the food. And the food at Pier 60 when I was there was truly exceptional. And I think it would be of great value to the audience if you would share a little bit about your philosophy in terms of 
your entire approach to preparing a menu and, and the presentation of the food to the uh, to the customer because it is very unique and exceptional. Yeah, well, the genesis of our food product really goes back to to Abigail and Abigail Kirsch, who her story goes back to the sixties and you know in her basement and and having a, a cooking school and going to CIA and then branching you know going into business herself and. Her her philosophy was really memorable presentation, incredible flavors, and just putting twists on some you know normally uh, you know very familiar dishes, but but doing it with a little extra flair and panache, and, and reimagining some of the staples that we're all familiar with. So that legacy has continued on through her original partner and chef of Abigail Kirsch, Alison Arbuck, who is a partner in this company Pure Sixty, and Alison every year undertakes a very comprehensive menu development where we start around November. Some of the planning for it starts even before that. But we start to really look at what works, what doesn't work, what have we been selling, what have we not been selling, what's current, what are the trends, you know, and that just comes from, you know, and that, now this will be a collaboration amongst all our chefs, you know, our sous chefs and our executive chef, Matt Scornia and Jennifer Haroon is here. So we go through a process of first deciding what we want to keep, what we want to get rid of. And then we collaborate with a lot of our sous chefs and we start coming up with new dishes and we start tasting them. And we and it's a very robust process on a kind of weekly basis where we start tasting and then, you know, changing, getting rid of things and ultimately coming up with a, you know, a set of what we think are new, exciting dishes for the following season. We have a photo shoot and then we have a, a tasting day, which is, I must remember the first time I ever did this with our team and we invite all the sales team uh, all the event managers, and we have a we taste everything, and you know now with Instagram, it's a big day in Instagram, and we climb so can we come? You know they want it, they want to see some of the food, but we just invest very heavily into the into the into the process and into the belief that we got to stay ahead of the trends and and be setting the standard, setting the bar, if you like, in the industry, rather than you know I've worked in places where you know it's just sort of a, a little bit of an afterthought. It's, it's really not kind of built into the DNA where it is with us. And then also with buffet presentations, cocktails, um, our wireless, we're just constantly trying to push the, uh, the boundaries and come up with things that just wow people because we really want to capture people with their, with their eyes and then ultimately with their taste and their taste buds. So it's something we've really become known for that it's, we're not going to let you down with the food creativity or quality. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that you kept mentioning in your answer, and it was something I definitely noticed as well, which was presentation. And I think one of the mistakes, and I'd be curious to know your thoughts on this, I think one of the mistakes that people who just start off in the catering or the event business is they will hyper-focus on having great food. And obviously, there's challenges whether you're hosting the event in the same space, you're going to different events, different locations, as a caterer or what have you. But the presentation, particularly when it's part of an event, is so crucial. Now, I know, if, if I'm not mistaken, you guys are baking everything and, and cooking everything from scratch, every element of your menu, which is, which is, also, extra, which is also extraordinary. But, yeah. but, but what are your thoughts on that again? Because, again, that, that's something that jumped out at me, and it always jumps out at me when I go to an event that's truly memorable it's the presentation, and I think it's a, I think it's a particularly significant dimension 
for the event business. And I think sometimes it's overlooked by people that are new to that business because they're so hyper-focused on quality, which is for sure essential. But you really need to have that one-two punch if it's going to be extraordinary. And I'm curious to know your thoughts. I I agree. And part of our process, in in addition to creating these uh, plated appetizer entrees and so forth, hors d'oeuvres, our buffets and our presentations. I mean, Alison's definitely an artist in many ways. I mean, an, an artist first and foremost is also a chef. So she's got that eye, but once we once we have decided on the presentation or whatever it's going to be, whatever display or food display, and we shoot that, you know, we, we photograph it, and then the key is consistency. You know, the key is executing consistently and having everyone kind of on board. So our team then are you know from our, our culinary team, but also our service team, front of house team, our captains, our bank managers, our event managers. There's only one way to set up whatever element, whatever break, buffet, reception, you know, whatever cart, whatever we're doing. There's one way to set it up, and it's the way we created it, the way, you know, came out of Alice and our, our match mind. And I think that's key. That's the key to consistency, that we're, you know, um, we're not adding or amending things on the fly. We're not changing the recipe. We, we've created the recipes. We've created the, the sort of SOP for the setup, and we execute consistently. And I think that's really key. And then we really hold people accountable then, whether through spot checking and the chefs, the checking and so forth. And I just feel that's the key because, I mean, again, I've worked in places where the process is not as robust and you find that inconsistency and just the lack of quality, the lack of attention to detail. You know, as I said, it's in our DNA here to do it the right way every time. One of the subjects that I've had conversations with and with prior guests, and this is mostly restaurants or bar owners, is that there was a real shift and a very positive shift in the relationship between customers and the establishments they frequented after 2020. The level of connection between customers that were going to their regular restaurant or even places that they were trying for the first time, the level of appreciation, the level of community, the depth of that relationship changed. And I'm wondering if if you've noticed something similar in the event space as well. Obviously, It's established now that people love getting together in person and we're social creatures by nature. I'm wondering if you've noticed anything different in either the energy or the interactions or or anything that you could sort of put your finger on in terms of how things are today versus pre-2020, if there's another dimension or depth to that dynamic that perhaps you've observed. Well, I think there's incredible energy around the events industry in New York City at the moment and demand is... I would have to say unprecedented, whether that relates to the, the pent up demand that stemmed from people, you know, not being able to convene and be together. But when I think back to March of twenty twenty and we were just stopped in our tracks and we were closed down and we we had to close with every other industry in New York City. But we were also the last to come back. So we had this extended period of time where we were essentially out of business. But the one thing we decided really from day one was that we were going to do the right thing for our customers and our clients. And and, and I can't speak for how other uh, caterers or event spaces dealt with that situation, but we really, we already had really strong relationships. I feel we really created deep bonds with some of our clients because they were in the same boat. So we were, we viewed it as an opportunity to be as flexible as possible, as creative as possible with contract terms and 
looking for new dates and trying to move events as much as possible. But I always remember our incredible sales team, we'd all closed down in March and you know, we had no idea what the future held. Really, in a, ultimately, it was almost 16 to 17 months before we did an event again. But I remember Leo Lorenzo, my director of sales, coming to me in April and we were probably closed four or five weeks at that point. And he's like, Paul, I really think we want to start thinking about our summer gift, you know, that we would like, we would deliver these summer gifts. Intuitively, I was like, oh, that, that's probably, is that really the most important thing we need to think about now? But then I was like, he's absolutely right. We do. So, so we did the small things in terms of the communication with staying in touch with people, just checking in all the time. And I think those, those little things like a gift or whatever were so important. And I think then when, when we were able to get back towards doing business again, we weren't picking up someone going, hey, remember us? We, we haven't really missed a beat with some of those relationships. And I think that's been quite helpful to us now. And I think, you know, and I think a lot of that effort has been repaid to us by some of these clients coming back with events, multi events in some regard. So I feel we're in a good place in that regard and kind of glad we, we did some of the things we did back since 2020. I think that's such a great story and such an important one. And we made similar decisions from our vantage point as well. But the decision to stay engaged was yeah. a big decision. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people didn't choose to do it. And I think it didn't help them, to put it kindly. Yeah, and I, think, I would agree. You know, and I think that's, that's a phenomenal one. Now, one of the subjects that I discuss, I've discussed in other episodes, and I've received emails on it, because people that are looking to get into the hospitality business, which as you know, and as I know, is, a, is an incredibly rewarding and enjoyable business, but it's also extraordinarily challenging. And sometimes people fail to appreciate the challenges because it looks very glamorous and everybody loves to go out and, and eat and all of those things. But, you know, it's a business. And one of the key drivers of success for any hospitality business is, is repeat business. And I know that that's something that you've done an exceptional job at. I think it's obviously incredibly important in the event space business. Can you share a little bit of your thoughts on that subject in terms of what you guys do in a deliberate or conscious manner to really drive repeat business or how you leverage the relationships you have to serve as a platform for either repeat business or just additional awareness in general? Meaning like, you know, obviously people know what the Chelsea peers are, but you have a great event. You have phenomenal people that are hosting at your space, but there's so many places in New York that people can host. There has to be a secret sauce that you guys have where people say, you know what, we want to come here year in and year out. We don't need to sample what's going to go on elsewhere because this is almost like our home away from home, you know? Yeah. Well, no, no question. And I think it starts with the relationships we form with our clients, and that starts with our sales person who, who handles the account directly, but extends right to our organization. And one of the nice elements of having this event at one of our venues is you are the only event in the venue for the day. Now, that wouldn't be unique to us, but, but certainly if, if you're having an event at the Waldorf, for example, which is closed right now, there could be three other big events, four other big events, you know, and attention can be divided, right? So we pride ourselves on really paying a lot of attention to our clients when when they're here for the day, and it's a bit of touches, you know. It's the, and it, and it, but it's the, you know the follow up after the event, it's the, the dialogue even before the event happens about the following year. So we're constantly thinking about how the next phase of, of these relationships. Obviously, we have to execute them. I mean, that's the key, and there's nothing like it. You know, we have a big event here for. 
hundreds of people and the lighting and entertainment and the floral and they raise a lot of money and, and it's just such a beautiful, beautiful place to have an event. That energy, I think, just extends into the, the period after the event. Look, we definitely want to leverage all those great memories into what date you want to come back. You know, we're exactly. rolling it for you. We don't try and wait around. and We're definitely proactive in terms of making sure we get people back on the corresponding date for the following year. And that's key. And, and you know, definitely at the moment with the demand the way it is, I definitely feel some of these dates are really in demand that people want to lock in sometimes even the, even before they've done the event this year. So it's a really healthy uh, market at the moment for us, certainly. But but it's all about the relationships. I think that's where it starts. And I think our customers have been very loyal to us and we're very, very appreciative of that. So I could talk to you all day and I, I have such respect for, for you and the organization, but there's a question I must ask you because I think it's going to be of great value to a lot of our listeners and it's the following. You have an incredibly impressive resume in this industry and you've worked in a variety of different avenues. You've obviously received formal education what advice would you give to a young person who knows they have a passion for the hospitality industry and they're determining to begin their journey towards achieving that objective of, of working in this industry? What advice would you give them as they begin their journey in terms of the best way to approach the beginning of that journey to set themselves up with a great foundation for a great career? Well, it's a really good question. But I I think I look back at myself and I look at people I've seen who have become successful or, or had a you know, had a had a career great career progress and I think having a really positive attitude is so important. And also being patient. You know, there's a tendency now I find sometimes and I don't want to age myself, but you know, there's a maybe a younger generation and little impatience and they want to they want to feel that sort of progression and you know next step success promotion uh, right away where i feel that will happen but you've got to put in the work you've got to have a good attitude you've got to work hard but you have to create that reputation of reliability and dependability but i think if you've got the right attitude and you're willing to work hard good things will come and I would say, get along with everyone. <laughs> get along with everyone you come across in this business. It doesn't matter what level they're at, particularly in New York City, because inevitably you meet them again somewhere down the line. So that's that's key. But I think it's a great attitude, you know, just being positive. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing industry. There's so many, I think more and more so with the amount of tech and development of different softwares and stuff in the business. But there's, there's so many different avenues you can go down now in hospitality that you just got to keep an open mind. You're, as I said, good attitude. You want to work hard. Doors will open for you. Well, Paul, I have to say this has been such an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And, and I like to be around people and businesses that inspire me. And the level of excellence that you have and your team has at the Pier 60 Collection is truly inspiring. And for anyone who doesn't live in New York, or even if you live in New York and you've never been to Chelsea Piers, it's worth checking out. And this has been terrific. So I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. And I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Stephen. It's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Well, Paul, have a great day and uh, great talking with you. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 
And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.